Jesus save Mormon Mental Health is a production of Mormon Stories Podcast and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards supporting its listeners. To support the podcast, please consider a donation today at mormonmentalhealth.org. And thanks for listening. Jordan Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mormon Mental Health. This is Natasha Helfer-Parker, and today I am very excited to be interviewing a really pretty phenomenal family. I've got Ari and her father, Ed, and her mother, Keikel Hayward, here with me tonight. And Mike, the boyfriend, is along for the ride as well. Um, and I came across this family through a YouTube video that's been making the rounds called Transgender Mormon Woman in Utah uh, by OHO Media and Video West. And I just found the story um, so fascinating and wonderfully done and so true to so many of the experiences I've worked with, um, with clients of my own around transgendered issues. And this is just a topic that I think we're greatly lacking on as far as education in the general culture and maybe more so in Mormon culture. So I really am so pleased to welcome this family on today to um, help us understand this situation and understand the family dynamics and the individual dynamics and the Mormon dynamics that go along with this issue. So welcome to the show, everyone. Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to start with Ari and... Um, just, you know, if you can just kind of introduce yourself to us and tell us a little bit about yourself and how you come to tell your own personal story when it comes to being a transgendered individual. Uh, well, like you said, my name is Ari and um, I live in Orem, Utah, which is a very conservative Mormon area. And... Um, We've lived here for 12 years now, and we recently were a part of a documentary that sort of covered um, what the process has been like for me uh, to have surgery, and it uh, got really popular. So we've been trying to just sort of share our story and and talk about what it's been like for us as a family to, to go through that transitioning process, because it's not just something that you know, the transgendered person deals with. It's sort of something that everyone in, in their life and in their circle also deals with. Um, how I usually start out is I just kind of go over um, how I found out for myself that I was transgendered. Um, I think that's a process that's different for everyone. And um, for me, it started out when I was little. I I knew that I felt like I was different and that I wasn't a boy. And um, it wasn't until much later that I actually learned there was such a thing called trans, you know, transgenderism or or transsexualism. And um, so after I was able to educate myself, I was then able to come out and um, go through that process of transitioning with the help of my very supportive family. How old were you about when you started that coming out process? So my, my, I took it in a couple steps. My first step was um, when I found out there was such thing as, you know, gay people or homosexual people. And I, I looked at them from a very um, 
unfamiliar, a very ignorant, um, sheltered perspective. And all I saw were some effeminate men who liked men. And since I'd always been, you know, told I'm, I'm a boy, I thought, well, here I am. I'm very effeminate and I do like boys, so I must be gay. And so after sort of educating myself on that and, and wrestling with that, I, I came out as gay first. And then after living as gay for a couple years, um, I learned of, you know, transsexuals or people that are gender variant. And um, I was watching TV with my grandma and my grandpa in Japan, and they had a panel of of a hundred different uh, trans people. They had trans transvestites, transsexuals, transgendered, and every other gender variant form in between. And after watching that show, I realized that I wasn't gay and that I was actually trans. And so then I went through, again, educating myself on what it means to be trans and then coming out again to my parents. Um, and I think I was around 19 when that happened. So so help us understand some of these terms that you're using. I mean, for some people wouldn't understand what the difference between gay and transgender is. Can you speak to that? Um, so as far as my understanding is, um, you know, being gay is, is still being comfortable with your gender identity um, and simply having a, an attraction to that same gender or sex. So you're um, born into a male body, you're comfortable right. with your male body, you identify as a male, and you're attracted to another male. Same, I could have said the same thing about a female. Exactly. Um, so whether you're lesbian or gay, you know, it. all gender rules apply to everyone. Whereas with someone who's transgendered or a transsexual, um, they feel as though they've been born in the wrong body and that they, you know, they have serious issues with that. And, and it actually doesn't speak to the sexual orientation of the individual. It's more the gender identity. In other words, you could have a transgendered individual who is also gay. Right. And that's actually something that surprises people a lot when I'm giving presentations, because a lot of the times we just assume that, you know, LGBT, the T is part of the whole, you know, sexual orientation, but really it's, it's different. Yeah. The T almost should be its own category, right? Like it's a totally different kind of ball game. Right. Yeah. So you mentioned kind of from a really early age, then kind of not feeling in line with the, with the biological gender that you came to this world with. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Like when did that start forming in your consciousness? Well, I think what's interesting um, for those that have studied um, psychosexual development in children, um, you know, children aren't actually aware of the fact that sex and gender is something that is, you know, quote unquote permanent. Um, and and so before I actually knew there was a difference between you know, the sex of an individual, I knew that there was a difference between a uh, dad and a mom. And so I identified with my mother and when we would play house as children, I always wanted to play the mother. And it wasn't until I was told by my friend that I couldn't be the mom because I was a boy that I, that's when I realized that there was something wrong. And I, you know, I went crying to my parents and I, I told them that, that I wanted to be a girl and, 
and my parents just sort of thought it was a phase. Story. And my dad, yes, he, my dad told me a story about a little dog that always liked to play with cats and even thought that he was a cat. But one day he realized he was a dog and he went back to being a dog. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so this gets this gets interestingly complicated in the sense of just to throw out some examples so we can be clear, like you can be a female child, very comfortable. So in other words, cisgendered, which cisgendered means you um, agree with the gender that you were born into, right? But you could be tomboyish, to use a, a slang term that's pretty yeah. common. And so, in other words, you're comfortable being a girl, but you're maybe not comfortable with some of the gender roles assigned to being a girl. So you right. want to now, you know, be in overalls and play sports with the boys, but you still are very much wanting to be a girl, right? And whether or not you're gay or straight really has nothing to do with that process, right? Exactly. And the same goes for a, f- a feminine boy who might feel very comfortable with his maleness and want to be in his male body. So, and then you have the transgendered kind of options, which is, I don't, I don't feel like this is the right body I'm in. I was born as a boy, but I feel like really I'm a girl and I might want to act tomboyish or effeminate, but it has nothing to do with how I identify as, as, as my gender. Right. So it's very complicated. There's so many things to try to take into consideration. Right. Like, I'm not even sure I made that very clear <laughs> in, in trying to clarify. <laughs> right. So so these are really kind of different things. And that's why I think it's so important not to jump to assumptions, right? Like, if there's a effeminate uh, boy running around, that doesn't necessarily make him transgendered. Right. But there might be something there that you could explore or at least have conversations with or at least allow the child to express, right? And so it sounds like when you're talking about the story about the friend saying, hey, you can't really ever be a mom, are we talking about like four, five, six years old? Is that? Yes. Yeah. We are talking, I mean, my earliest memories. Right. Okay. All right. So you're putting your parents through some interesting and family and friends through some interest and yourself <laughs> through some really interesting kind of coming out processes, right? You're coming out as a, as a gay man, then you're coming out as a transgendered woman. Um, what, what is that like for you? I mean, that's pretty tough stuff to do much less have to do it twice. You know, the first time it was difficult. The second time it was kind of, you know, we'd already been through the, the drama so it was a little less well actually no I managed to keep things pretty dramatic you know I pretend like I'm not dramatic but then when you look at all the destruction around me there's no other way to to label it but dramatic um the first time that I came out as gay you know I at the time I was you know in the priest quorum I was the first assistant in the priest quorum you know, I had all these responsibilities and, and, you know, we were going to a Mormon private school. And so it was just very sort of saturated in, in the Mormon culture, as well as the LDS faith. Mm-hmm. And so coming out was very, very stressful. And I think it was a, it was a Sunday 
when I just did not want to go to church anymore. And I just, I was so exhausted of trying to, to juggle everything. And, um, it was quite a process for everyone, I think, to, to go through coming out as, as gay. And then, um, when I came out as trans, I think because we had had such a dramatic experience with me coming out as gay, when I came out as trans, um, I didn't really know what I was supposed to be doing, how I was supposed to be, you know, responding to everything. And, and I don't think that my parents knew how to respond correctly. And, and so that ended up leading to some, some more uh, depression and just more drama, for lack of a better word. And once we were able to get through that, we were able to actually go in healthy transitioning steps for me. Okay. So before I ask you more about that, tell me a little bit about your Mormon story. How do, how did you come to be a Mormon and what, you know, as you, as you talk about, you know, coming out when you're very much entrenched in this Mormon culture, what, what was that like for you? Well, um, I guess the best way is to start from the very beginning, <laughs> a very good place to start. Um, once <laughs> upon a time, my dad served a mission in Japan. So when he came back to BYU in Provo, he decided to date a Japanese woman, my mother. And she fell mad in the And yes, they, she just was head over heels for him because he was so awesome. And and they got married in the temple, and then they had me. And so, you know, my whole life I was raised LDS, and uh, my, my mom's parents, so my grandparents, are not LDS. So we do have some non-Mormon influence, but my dad's side of the family is all very, very LDS. And, um, you know, growing up, um, growing up Mormon, you know, like I was saying, being very active in the church, I was always involved uh, with some sort of, you know, I, I guess, is, is that a calling when you're like the president of the teacher's quorum? Right, right. And then, you know, in, the, in my uh, Mormon private school, I was also very involved. I was always, you know, on the service committee and the drama club and um, just, just very overly involved I think I'm sure that I drove people insane because they just thought doesn't this person have anything better to do with their lives um, but I didn't and um, and then you know out of nowhere I just sort of decided to drop everything and and go in the opposite direction because I had spent so much time in the LDS culture that I needed a, a little break and when when was this? When are you referring to? So I came out as gay, and um, I kind of it was a lot of up and down. Um, but you know, there were I, I mean, I was partying with my friends, and I I, ne I didn't go to church, and I was just kind of exploring the other side that I'd never explored before. And um, now that I sort of had that chance to sort of gain some balance I think that I've come to a, a better place where I'm able to make choices based on experience 
as well as, you know, spirituality and faith. So it sounds like you took the the Mormon paradigm pretty seriously as a kid and as a young, you know, as a young, um, a young man at the time. And so looking back on that, is that, I mean, can you say that you had a testimony of these things that we classify call a Mormon testimony or was it more of a social like outlet for you to be very much involved in things or how would you look at that now? I think that it was a lot of things. I think it was testimony mixed with, you know, that was just what was expected of me mixed with, I was overcompensating for the fact that, I mean, I knew growing up, I, until I was, you know, 12 or 13, you know, before I learned what, what gay was or what homosexuality was before any of that, I was, you know, regularly (laughs) daydreaming and just fantasizing about becoming a girl. And, and then when I found out or when I, you know, learned of, of, gay people and gay culture and and sort of realizing that I was I was gay I sort of started feeling guilty and so then I was overcompensating for that guilt by being so involved and so it was a combination of a lot of different things right right so you know I noticed that you mentioned you know kind of in a almost a self-deprecating way oh you know I was full of drama and um, this was a very dramatic time, but there's part of me that kind of picks up on some, maybe some pain there or something that is more profound. I mean, I think that there are real mental health repercussions to some of this. I think what you're saying, trying to fit a mold and feeling like you don't, and not only having the overall culture, not understand that, but having a very religiously based culture and your spirituality all tied into that. And so, I'm not sure I'm comfortable just calling it drama. <laughs> right. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about what, I mean, looking at it kind of made from a more mental health perspective, you mentioned depression, anxiety. I mean, what, what did you experience or what do others experience that you feel really affects kind of their psychological state of being as they're kind of trying to maneuver these types of issues? Well, one of the, I think the most important um, things, and this is something that I actually talked about a lot with my dad about, and I think that's sort of what helped him a lot too. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but um, when you are dealing with something that, you know, is, is such a, a big secret that you feel like you can't tell anyone every time you do something or every time someone gives you a compliment or every time someone says, you know, oh, you are such a faithful member or, you know, even just a simple, like, I I love you. You hear that, but then a voice inside of you thinks, well, you, you say that now, but that's only because you don't know this deep, dark secret that I'm hiding. And And I mean, with my parents, you know, once I finally had the courage to tell them it wasn't perfect, but, you know, we were able to, to come to a place of understanding and my parents were still able to support me, um, which I know is not what is the most common, at least, um, as of right now, hopefully in the future that'll change. But, um, 
you know, before you're able to sort of kind of go over that peak, it is just a huge weight on, on any sort of confidence that you can build in yourself because you think, you know, like I was saying, every time someone says, I love you or you're such a good person, you think not really. Yeah, you, you do a really good job of explaining that. It's like a real psychological burden, right? In the sense of or right. a price that you're paying when you feel like you can't be transparent or when the world is telling you that there's something so intrinsically wrong with what you're feeling, um, even to the point that that God thinks it's wrong, right? That right. it's very and, difficult to overcome that. And I think my dad actually wanted to say something as well. Yeah, I want to add something to what Eddie was just talking about. Because yes, please. this is one of the things that I thought a, a lot about. And, uh, you know, when she first came out and told us she was that she was gay, that he was gay, and, uh, and we went through this uh, cycle. It's kind of like a grief cycle that we went through. And then we came out on the other side and we said, okay, well, this is the way it is. And Eddie's still Eddie and, you know, we'll just deal with it. And then a couple years later, she came out again as being transgender. And we went through the same cycle again. But it gave me a lot of time to think about things. And, you know, um, when you're a parent and you're trying to say certain things that you feel really good about. And so when you say to your son and you say things like, uh, um, you know, I'm so proud of you, uh, you're going to be, you know, you're going to grow up to be a better man than your father. And, uh, and, and when you say things like, uh, you know, you're one of those special chosen uh, uh, spirits from Heavenly Father and, uh, and uh, you say these things, you I said them, and I think most parents say those, with complete confidence that this was the right thing to say and that it's having a positive effect on your child. You don't, you don't think about the fact that as you say that, just like Eddie was saying, and I think this is I, – I, I don't know how many of, uh, of your listeners, um, Natasha, are, are LDS. Some of them probably aren't. I really don't think this, this makes any difference. The things we're talking about, um, as a matter of fact, the LDS may be the extreme, and, but I think it will be very helpful to them. But when you're saying things like this, whether it's from a li- religious point of view or whether you're just trying to build up their self-confidence, um, you say it with complete confidence that it's going to have this, you know, this positive effect. And the child, whether they're struggling with same gender attraction or with gender identity disorder, they react just the way that Eddie said. And the way I would word it is, uh, is you say to your child, I love you. And, uh, and they say, no, you don't. You love the person that, that you think I am. And, and in my mind, I wonder if you don't start resenting that person. Because that is the person that your parent loved. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, Eddie, but I wonder if you don't start resenting the person that your parents love because it isn't you. And they keep complimenting that person. And they said that that person was a special spirit from Heavenly Father and that that person was going to grow up to be better than your father. And saying all of these things, and it just seems like it would be natural that you would start to resent that. And the parents are completely oblivious. They have no way of knowing I had absolutely no idea. I was sure that I was being a wonderful dad and saying all of the right things. Mm. Yeah, that's 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 a really great comment and and so true as far as just kind of the assumptions that we make around gender, right? I mean, that's so classic. Like you said, it's not just a Mormon thing. This is just all all over. We're very much creatures of 
what I call label organization. Right? It's like we organize the world around us and we do that by placing labels on things. And gender is one of the very first things that we place a label on. Is it a boy or is it a girl? So it's the first thing we say about um, a human being when they come to the world. And I think Mormonism also has this added kind of um, focus on gender roles, you know, that um, females are naturally nurturing, that uh, males are presiders. Uh, There's like a lot of uh, narrative around what females or males should or shouldn't be doing to have a successful family. Um, And therefore, that can even add a, a further level of complexity for LDS kids who are struggling with these kind of gender binaries that we place them in. So, okay, so um, let's, it it reminded me a little bit as you were talking about your daughter that, you know, you started with he and then you moved to she. So let's go there, Ari. Talk to us about how do people manage just from the pronoun perspective or name perspective. I, I get a lot of people saying, I don't even know how to address somebody. I don't want to offend them. I don't know. You know, so is there some knowledge that you can bestow upon everyone regarding those types of kind of more day-to-day issues? Um, I think uh, for, for my family and I, we've sort of come to this um, agreement that it's, it's much easier when we're talking about, you know, Eddie from the past, that it is easier to say he, because it's, inescapable um the fact that i you know i was male and that for a lot of my life i was trying to portray that i was to some very varying degree i was a man and i was trying to to be that and so it's just easier when we talk about my past um you know that i was a little boy um, but I think a lot of, of trans people don't have, um, whether it's the confidence or just the, you know, they are just still struggling. And so even when talking about the past, they prefer to use, you know, the pronouns that they are more comfortable with versus, you know, the pronouns that are assigned to their, their sex at whatever stage of the transition they may be in. And um, if if anyone ever has confusion, I say your safest bet is to just ask. Ask the individual what they prefer, because even if even if being asked, um, you know, is a little bit sensitive to them, from that point on, you'll be able to be using the right pronoun that they're comfortable with. And it will be so much better for that individual than to have to hear the wrong pronoun used for such a long time. Eddie, correct me if I'm wrong, but I I think my experience has been that if you ask and you say, should I refer you to, to you as he or she, most of the responses I've got is that they are really pleased that you even asked. And so you really can't go wrong by asking them what pronoun they'd like to use. One of the other things that I learned, and it... And I had to work hard to switch pronouns, um, but I learned that it hurt Eddie um, after she was presenting as female. If I would, uh, if I would, uh, she wouldn't say anything, 
but I could tell that it hurt her if I kept using the male pronoun. So I worked hard to switch. Now it actually comes completely natural to me, although everyone else in the world, I keep getting their pronouns wrong. I've got Eddie right. And, uh, <laughs> Thank goodness. And, uh, but it seems perfectly natural for me to talk about her when she was a little boy, when he was a little boy, and, and because I, 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 I feel like I had this wonderful little boy that grew up into a wonderful woman. <laughs> and that may seem strange to everyone else, but that's what happened to me. And so to me, it seems perfectly natural. I love that. Yeah, that's great. Okay, good. You mentioned as you were talking about kind of moving out of uh, this phase of kind of just mental anguish um, and with your family, you mentioned something about the healthy process of transitioning or that you started learning how to make it more of a healthy process. Can you can you speak to that and, and what you meant by that or what exactly you're referring to as far as things that you've learned along the way or that you've learned as a family along the way that that helped you feel healthier? Um, well, I think the best place to start, once again, is from the beginning, where I, you know, I told my parents that I was actually trans and sort of explained what that meant. And, um, you know, there was, there was a lot of just unawareness on both parts, uh, you know, myself and my parents, where I didn't feel like I was getting the support. I didn't know what direction to go in. And it just all seemed like, like too much work and nothing that I could handle. And I had had this reoccurring dream where I cut off my penis. And I thought, gosh, it's reoccurring. It must be a vision. I'm going to go ahead and do this. And in my state of depression and just sort of despair, thinking that there was just no way that I was ever going to be able to accomplish this long process of transitioning by myself, I, you know, took a knife and I went into the bathroom and I, I assure people that I, I disinfected the incision area and, and my workspace and we live right across the street from a hospital. So I just, I was just positive that I would survive this and it would be so much easier than trying to transition the, the right way or the healthy way. And um, after I saw myself in the mirror holding this knife, I thought, oh my goodness, I need help. And so I, you know, I put the knife down. I went and I talked to my parents and I said, you know, I, I need help. I just tried to cut off my penis and... I know that's not the right way to do it. And so once I was able to talk with them, we were able to start looking for a therapist. And after we found a therapist that we liked, it took a couple tries. Um, after we found a therapist that worked well, um, I was able to start. And there, you know, there's the, the Harry Benjamin guidelines to transitioning uh, is what, what the, the guidelines are called. And I was able to sort of go through that process and, and with the help of my family and the help of a mental health professional, I was able to get on hormones and have my legal sex changed and go through all those steps. Let me add something because, you know, all, all through Eddie's life, as she struggled with these things, she's always worried about uh, my wife and I. And, 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 uh, as she came out, she worried about it, and she tried to figure out how she could come out that would be the least problem for us. And when she first 
uh, came and told me uh, that she was gender identity disorder. She said to me, so dad, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not gay. I'm not a gay guy. I'm a woman that's trapped in a, gay, in a guy's body. And then she immediately said, but don't worry. I don't need to transition. Um, I, I just, I'm just happy to know that this is the way it is. I don't remember I, saying that. Yeah, she said that. And I think it's because probably the look on my face was one of, of, of distress. I don't remember saying that. <laughs> so, well, just for the record. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> well, I think she said that kind of worrying about me and, uh, and, and then, um, you know, when she went into the bathroom with the knife, none of us knew what was going on and she came out and I was watching TV and she came out and sit down and I'm so glad I turned off the TV, um, because I don't always do that. And, uh, and, uh, she said to me, she turned to me and she said, dad, I need to get some help. And I said, why, what's the problem? And then she told me what she had just almost done. And, uh, and I'll tell you, that was a wake up call for me because when she said that and she told me what she just about done, it, it took that for me to understand how serious this was. And one of the mistakes that a lot of people that have no experience with same gender attraction or gender identity disorder or anything like that, one of the mistakes that they make is they think that this is a choice that people make. And they think that someone just decides, oh, I think I'd rather be a woman. And, uh, and I've had people come up and try and, and, uh, and, and talk to me about that and promote that idea. And if there are parents that are listening, I, I really hope that they'll understand that that is not the case. Um, I'm probably talking too much, but let me say one more thing. Um, you know, I look back on Eddie's life now, and I, and I feel like an idiot because these things were going on and I had no idea. And uh, I realized that Eddie struggled for probably a decade with her feelings, um, not feeling like she could tell me because she knew I was too ignorant to understand. I hadn't had the experiences to understand, and she didn't know how I was going to react. And so she struggled with these feelings, and she prayed, and uh, and she tried to uh, change herself into the person that her culture had taught her that she needed to be. And that's not a criticism of the culture. That's just a fact of life. That's the way it was. And uh, and then when she continued to have the feelings, she blamed herself. And this is what drove her depression, was that she continued having me tell her how wonderful she was and feeling like I didn't know her, that she was a complete failure, that she couldn't even overcome this basic thing that everyone else wasn't having a problem with. And uh, And so it really took something that serious for me to really understand um, and and completely come over to Eddie's side on this as far as uh, supporting her, loving her, not trying to change her and fix her anymore, which is what most parents do at the beginning, but just accepting her the way she is and helping her to get her life the way it needs to be for her to be happy. Thank you. Yeah, so you bring up the kind of this interesting point that um, Aries is challenging you on, but that she said that, you know, oh, I, don't worry, though, you know, kind of something along those lines. And I think, Ari, to your dad's point, a lot of this isn't just an individual issue, right? I mean, you know that, that these things are going to affect your parents as you tell them, right? And so I think one of the challenges for individuals is that they're not just going through an individual process, they're going through a system process, and then on top of it, they're feeling like they have to caretake those other people through their transition um, adjustment, right? So in other words, here I am 
um, may depressed, even maybe possibly suicidal, about to do something pretty drastic to my body, and yet I'm still in that mode of, oh, but let me let me help those other people who care about me and who are having a hard time with what I'm going through too. Can you speak to that concept? Um, I think it is a lot of, of work and, you know, I get a lot of, of messages from people who, um, who are dealing with something, you know, similar. And one of the, the issues that they have is, you know, they say, I, my parents have known for, for two months now and nothing has changed. And my advice is, you know, we have spent our whole lives trying to figure out what is going on with ourselves. And, you know, it took me so many years to even just figure out that I was trans. And then from there, I was figuring out how to sort of accept that. And so when we come out to our families and then expect them to just sort of be comfortable and to be able to transition their minds to think the way that uh, we need or want, it, it's asking a lot. And and I know that it's a difficult thing and it's hard to be patient, but, you know, we it's something that I I had to really focus on was, you know, allowing for my parents to also have time to come to terms with it um, since I'd given them so much less time than I'd had for myself. That's great. And, and that's a big piece of why I think, you know, programs like this are so pivotal because if, if we're educated about these issues before they even come up with the possibility of them coming up in our lives, then we are better prepared as parents, um, or support networks to handle things correctly instead of putting that burden back on the child, you know, for example, that now, you know, not only are you going through the coming out process, but you've got to deal with my reaction to all this. And, and granted, I agree the reactions. And I think your father even mentioned, you know, a grief process. And I'll talk more about that when I speak with him more, but, um, it, it, you can't expect people to just, you know, not, not have a reaction. Obviously these are, these are, very um, personal and um, I think just what I want to say, just triggering topics, you know, that come with a lot of baggage and come a lot with a lot of assumptions and, and come actually with a lot of like fear of, of, especially I think if you're a parent of uh, wanting your child to be successful in society, right. And, and Mm -hmm. propelling them towards their own independence and the fears that can come from that. And then, of course, the added fears, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about more later, too, about maybe spiritual um, implications, right? Or what does this mean, especially in the construct of Mormonism for eternal families or, um, you know, quote-unquote worthiness, you know, those kinds of issues that I think can really uh, be very complicated to sort through. So, um Okay, good. Well, so let's get back to kind of your timeline, which you're, you're doing such a good job with. And you started out by saying that um, at the time this documentary was shot, you were preparing for uh, the surgery process. And you also mentioned, I think, some of these guidelines that your therapist helped you uh, kind of understand. So can you walk us through some of that process a little bit more to just understand what that all entailed and how you prepared for the surgery and as much as you're comfortable, because this is, I think, kind of 
starts delving into your own privacy, tell us about that process, but feel free to shut me down too. Okay. Um, so the Harry Benjamin guidelines, uh, they get updated every so often. So it used to be much, a much longer process, but, uh, I think recently it's been shortened. Um, so as far as I remember, uh, you have to first be diagnosed with gender identity disorder, which now I think is uh, dysphoria, I think, in the DSM. What is it, five now? Um, anyways, Correct. Uh, once you're, once you're uh, diagnosed with GID and you've spent some time with the therapist talking about just sort of the whole process and about your level of of depression or, or anything else that you might have uh, because of the GID. Um, after you've had a chance to deal with that, uh, you can then start taking hormones. And then after you've been on hormones for long enough that you can comfortably pass as uh, female or male, um, depending on which direction you're headed, you then uh, live as uh, that sex or that gender and I believe it's 12 months on the most recent uh, guideline update for 12 months. And then after 12 months, you can then uh, be qualified, I guess, for surgery. And and so I, I went through that process. And it took me a little bit longer just because, you know, it is not that easy. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of time that you have to go through sort of becoming, being comfortable with yourself, being comfortable in, in your community and, and just around your friends. Um, and then, of course, there's just sort of the saving up of money, which is it's a lot of money for the sex reassignment surgery. Which are, in my understanding, not usually covered by insurance plans. Maybe that's right. just starting to, to happen with some. The last time that I presented in a... Um, psychology of gender class which is just a couple months ago um the teacher said that i think it's it's the the insurance that the government gives um like military personnel that actually will cover the sex reassignment surgery which i think is just so funny <laughs> right that's kind of with the don't tell whole history that we have right <laughs> yeah yeah but i have found that as a practitioner as well that both medicaid and tricare although they pay horribly are usually <laughs> leading in um in in the practices of providing adequate care for many different things so they're usually the first to go a certain route and then if Blue Cross Blue Shield will follow, then everybody else will follow. It's kind of, that seems to be the process anyway. So that's, that's really, that's really beneficial to see that we're, we're kind of heading at least in that direction. Yes. Okay. So tell me then, I mean, let's back up to one of these guidelines that you're talking about, which is this transition phase of, it's one thing to come out and say, Hey, I'm, I'm trans and this is what I think. And that's kind of what we've been talking about. This is what I think I, I need to you know, identify as, but it's a whole thing. It's a whole other thing to walk out into the world dressed as a woman. And everybody <laughs> is used to seeing you dress as a man, right? I mean, these are the kind of the binaries that we see, um, that we see. And, and I think especially from man to woman, because, you know, women, I think 
can dress like men pretty easily. But um, but not so much the other way around. I mean, if you want to wear a skirt or a dress or makeup, or those are really things that men culturally do not wear in our country. So you're making a real kind of statement or a real a noticing factor, right, in your lifestyle change. Well, for me, and I, this is not the case for all trans people, um, but when I came out as gay, I sort of just started, I just thought that was me, my chance to be myself. And so I was dressing in women's clothing and my hair was longer and I had makeup on all the time. And I thought I was just being, you know, loud and proud gay. But really I was transitioning without realizing it. Without um, even knowing. Mm-hmm. I, I did have people you know, stop me from going into the men's restroom saying, ma'am, ma'am, you're in the wrong restroom. And, and so I was kind of lucky that I was able to sort of accidentally transition far enough that, um, you know, when I actually decided to transition, it was an easy step. Um, There's a story I like to tell when I'm presenting about how, the first time that I used the women's restroom, I was at the movies with my friend and it was just him and I. And after the movie was over, I was like, Oh, I've got to go to the bathroom really quick before we leave. And he just stopped and looked at me with this look on his face. And he was like, please use the girl's restroom. (laughs) And I, I was just like, well, why? (laughs) And he's like, everyone thinks you're a girl and everyone thinks we're going we're on a date. And if you go and use the men's restroom, I'm going to be embarrassed. And I was like, oh, gosh. Okay. And so that was the first time that I went to the women's restroom. And, and that's kind of when I first really started to realize that I have kind of transitioned even before I thought that I was ready. Yeah, that's really, that's really kind of cool, actually. Um, so, I know that. In most cases, you know, it is, it's the reason that um, the Harry Benjamin guidelines say to be on hormones for a certain amount of time before you start living as the gender you want to is because it can actually do a lot of damage if, you know, you're getting clocked um, everywhere you go um, because, you know, it just sort of is damaging to your self-confidence and your self-esteem to, to have everyone sort of call you out. So like micromanage what, things such as which restroom you're going to use or yes. what you should or should not be doing in certain spaces. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, so how comfortable are you in educating us on the whole uh, sex reassignment surgery for either gender? How, how, how knowledgeable are you about that or what What's the process for that? I don't like to call myself an expert, but I am fairly aware just because I've given so many presentations. Um, So it's easier to dig a hole than build a pole is what the doctors like to say. And so in that sense, it is nicer to be going from male to female. Mm -hmm. Um, It may not be easier, you know, to have skinnier arms or less broad of shoulders, but at least it's able, you're able to have that sex reassignment surgery be a little bit easier of a process. Um, I went with the sigmoid colon graft where they create the vaginal cavity 
um, using a graft of your colon, um, which is one of the more, I think, is it invasive? Is that the word they use? Invasive, invasive yeah. surgeries, but right because it's more. There's more to that. Mm-hmm. Yes, but it's harder on your body. I'm guessing is what they mean by that. I think I think that's what they mean by it. But I was totally fine. I I think I was just so excited to actually have finally gone through surgery that I didn't care um, how difficult of a process it was to heal. Sure, sure. Um, and then there's also um, where you can just have the sort of penile inversion and and then there's also the the scrotal graft as well okay so um and and then i think i i just want to mention as well that i know there are people who decide to to um well who are trans and who decide to obviously portray themselves as the new gender but don't necessarily choose to do the sex reassignment surgery right so that option is out there as well so just to not always assume that that not that it's anybody's business really but Mm. not to assume that (laughs) that 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 everybody chooses that route Right. There is a sort of a gradient scale to how much you identify with certain aspects of sex and gender. Mm-hmm. Okay. So again, you're perfectly um, welcome to tell me to just mind my own business, but wh- how, how comfortable are you talking about how this affects your sexual self in the sense of, I mean, I feel like we all struggle with our sexual selves anyway in this culture where we're very um, picky about what's considered sexy or attractive or uh, sexually, um, you know, feasible. And so I think most of us at some level or another struggle with body image issues and, and therefore that can affect sexuality and how we present ourselves or how comfortable we are in that realm. And I'm not, I don't even, I'm not even going to go down the road of whether or not you are sexual. I'm just talking about your sexuality and, and how you feel that affects you and, and what you're comfortable sharing in that sense. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm totally comfortable, but I am also sitting in front of my parents. So that's a new, <laughs> a new thing that I haven't had to, to experience before, but I'm like putting uh, you on the spot. I'm sorry. <laughs> No, you're fine. Um, so, you know, it is a really complicated process, uh, sort of process or, or sort of just place to be in when, um, you know, for me, I, I felt like I was very accepted in society as a female, even before um, sex reassignment surgery. But there was still this issue that, you know, I still had to deal with every day. And I developed... A really, I mean, I am very proud of myself for how good I got at duct taping. Um, because that, it was, I mean, it was just sort of a band aid. <laughs> People but, won't understand what you're saying if you don't explain. Oh, I will, I will. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, it was just sort of a band aid, but it was a significant, um, sort of step forward in being able to see myself as the, you know, the woman or the female that I wanted to be. And I think it's sort of, people are a little bit more aware since there are other trans people, you know, in the media who've talked about this before, but, um, you know, 
with with the right sort of pieces and sizes of duct tape, you can really keep a lot of everything sort of hidden. And so I would go swimming in, you know, bikinis and and whatnot. And I got away with it because I was able to, you know, use duct tape to keep everything down and hidden and out of mind, out of sight. Right. Yeah, and I hear that a lot, too, from... Um well, trans who are in a female body biologically and they're duct taping their breasts, you know, down right. and so that they're not able, so that their chest feels more, um, you know, with what they, with what they see themselves at. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So I think, I mean, I'm, I'm so grateful that you're willing to kind of share at this level because I think these are things that again are so useful for the educational process that people I, I don't know think about or understand how personal this becomes, um, you know, one's relationship with one's body. And, and for those of us who are cisgendered, uh, how many things we take for granted. I, I have to, you know, now that I've had surgery, I notice a lot of things and I, I think I, I'm starting to see sort of what it's like to be cisgendered. Obviously there's, it's not quite the same, but, um, you know, just being able to, throw on my clothes and go out the door is such a a significant difference because before, you know, before I was going to go somewhere, I had to pull out the tape, tape everything down and, and try to, you know, dress in a way that would, you know, make me look as feminine as I could. And I was always worried about my makeup and um, there were just all these things that, that I think some women, you know, they put on makeup because that's just what you do. But I was putting on makeup because I was trying desperately for the world to view me as I viewed myself. And so now to, you know, be post-op, it's really uh, amazing. And, And I try not to ever take it for granted that I'm so much more comfortable in my skin now. Right, right. So relating that back to my question about sexuality, then as far as presenting yourself in a sexual way at some point, um, is that something that you feel that, you know, you can move towards because that's kind of, I mean, that's the transparency that needs to happen for a sexual relationship anyway, right? Is that I'm going to share my entire self with somebody. And so is that capacity for you to feel sexy and attractive as a woman? Is that something that you've had to kind of work on or you feel like you're there or I mean I don't know why I'm even asking this I mean this is something I'm working on on a regular basis (laughs) (laughs) men are always are are trying to you know find a way to to be comfortable with themselves and I think before I was really focused on my outward appearance and um, you know, duct taping was a huge step. I felt once I started duct taping and I, I was wearing bikinis and, and, you know, guys were hitting on me. I was sort of kind of like, yes, I have done it. Um, guys are asking for my phone number and I'm wearing a bikini and no one can tell. And I, um, you know, it, that was sort of like a really big leap. in that direction of being comfortable with myself and with my sexuality and being able to see myself as something that is moderately attractive. Whereas before I just felt so awkward and so just 
you know, I was, I was not comfortable with myself. Why would anyone else be comfortable with me? Kind of a, a mindset. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I think that's what I'm trying to get at is that whether we're sexually active or not, um, accepting our sexuality is just such an integral part of of our identity, right? And that sense of feeling comfortable in your own skin or feeling like you have that sexual capacity in the gender that you want to be. I think that's just such an important aspect of your identity transition. Well, great. Okay. So before I move on to your parents, is there anything else? You mentioned that you're doing a ton of presentations. So tell us a little bit about, yeah, what, what are you doing? What's, what's the rest of your life about? (laughs) Um, well, I do, um, I present, um, at UVU mostly, and then occasionally at BYU, um, just on like different panels or just uh, myself in front of a class to sort of try and just do my part in helping people be aware and, and give them a chance to ask the questions that maybe they've always wondered, but never had the, the opportunity to ask. These are invitations that you're receiving from these universities to come and present? Uh, uh, they'll be from like teachers um, as well as there is a BYU has a group called uh, USGA, which is Understanding Same Gender Attraction. And um, they sort of just take time um, to get together and to talk about things and to have discussions and panels to sort of try and and educate and familiarize people with, with uh, an important part of, of who we are. Hmm. That's great. I'm so glad to hear that that's happening, especially in the setting of BYU, for example, that they're open to having these types of discussions. I think that's fabulous. Uh, They're not an official BYU group. I do have to Mm -hmm. say that, Mm -hmm. they are, (laughs) but they are, you know, a, a group of BYU students and um, and that's what they've been you know trying to actively promote which is really really great right right that's great well let me let me grab Mike for a minute because um, yeah. hello Mike hello. <laughs> um, you've been patiently waiting here uh, yes. so you're you're the the boyfriend Correct. All right. So tell me a little bit about, well, either one of you, tell me a little bit about how you met, how long have you known each other, and how has this transition either been a part or not been a part of of your relationship? Well, we met about three years ago, and I was doing a project for school. Uh, It was to interview someone with a different cultural background than myself to try and gain some perspective. And I had a friend who said, oh, I, I know someone who's very different culturally. <laughs> they have a very different background from you. And so there was the aspects of her multicultural with the Japanese background, as well as all the background with being involved with the homosexual community and the trans community as well. So uh, I actually met her the first time we met. I interviewed her. Uh, not unlike you are doing here and just got to know her and she was very open and very magnetic. There's something about Eddie that just draws people in and I think that's part of why she's been so successful with um, 
the documentaries. People love seeing her. Uh, she's very relatable. And that was very attractive to me. She was already living as a woman at the time and passable as a woman. And to me, has always been a woman. So that was really not, at least as far as my part of the relationship, it wasn't part of it. She's always been a woman to me. Yeah, that's lovely. So, in other words, just to clarify, you are a heterosexual male, and this is not, this is, for you, this was kind of just a, a typical gendered union. Uh, yes, uh, I would say that, but uh, not very typical in the fact that Eddie's just so amazing and beautiful. <laughs> and So, typical as in heterosexual for me. Yes. But out of this world and how much you're into her. Exactly. Okay. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Thank you for joining us today on Mormon Mental Health. To discuss this episode, please check us out at mormonmentalhealth.org. To keep the podcast alive, please consider a donation today, again, at mormonmentalhealth.org. Logo was provided by Daniel Singer. Music was generously donated by Lower Lights. Please check them out at thelowerlights.com and thanks for listening